Hi, Tessa. Hi. How are you feeling? Good. Can you tell me what you feel about the coronavirus? Blah, blah. That's how you feel? Yes. I feel like Rapunzel and the coronavirus is an evil witch. And they have to stay in the tower all day long. But at least I get to spend all day with my mommy and my daddy. <laughs> what are some things you have to do to protect yourself from the coronavirus? Wear a mask. You like wearing a mask? Uh, no. No. But they have to. But you have to. And don't forget, please wear a mask. Bye. Welcome to Part of the Planet, a podcast about our changing planet and what we're doing to manage that change. It's been a few weeks um, since we've done any podcasts or anything of the sort. It's been a tumultuous few weeks, uh, to say the least. Um, the, the, the world, the planet, our country, all of us are going through lots of different things uh, at the same time. But I'm happy to be back and I'm happy to be joined by Sarah Fecht, who is the content manager of our uh, do you call it our blog or I, I don't like to call it our blog, but I know when we put it together, um, I don't know, 10 years ago or so we, it was a blog, but these days, what, how do you describe the, the, the state of the planet? I submit to peer pressure. Everybody else calls it a blog. So I call it a blog too. Okay. But you're the, you're the manager, you, you run it. So do you have what, how, how would you like to call it? Um, I usually just say I edit the state of the planet blog, but I mean, you could call me the blog boss if you want or something like that. <laughs> okay. Blog boss. Hashtag blog boss. I haven't, <laughs> I, I, I want to do that now. I hadn't thought about it before. Okay. So Sarah, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for coming on. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Um, just trying to survive the pandemic, I guess. Yeah. The pandemic um, and, and lots of other things uh, mm -hmm. happening at the same time. Uh, the, the state of the planet blog, uh, I'll just call it that for now. Um, yeah. I, how how have things been uh, as far as I guess managing the information that's coming through it and and um, and the the kind of posts that you've been seeing and I, I'm just curious have you taken any sort of um, specific approach in in light of everything that's going on? Um, things have been very busy on the blog ever since things sort of started shutting down in March. Um, People, I think, don't have a lot of other work they can do because, unfortunately, they can't go into their labs. They can't go on their field research. So I think a lot of people mm -hmm. are turning to blogging. Um, and also just because it's, I think it's helping people to process all of these changes that are going on in the world, not just with the pandemic, but with Black Lives Matter and all of that. Um, so yeah, we've had a busy time on the blog. I'm getting a lot of essays from people, like personal essays, mm -hmm. which I think are great. Um, sort of talking about what all of this chaos is teaching us. I think that's been mm -hmm. really insightful and, and worth having our listeners check out. Yeah, definitely. And I, I see exactly what you mean. I've been noticing a few new bylines, um, you know, uh, regular characters at the Earth Institute, but new bylines for the state of the planet and would um, absolutely highly encourage everyone who's listening to this to continue to check out state of the planet. Uh, I, I, I consider the blog to be 
kind of like the aorta of the Earth Institute. Uh, you know, it's really the the lifeline um, where all of our information kind of flows out of and, and comes through. Um, so I'm really, uh, I think it's great that you're you're managing it and you do such an amazing job, Sarah. With that. Oh, thank you. So let's get into the podcast itself. We you're here because uh, part of what the reason why we started this podcast was to try to get as many people at the Earth Institute involved on both sides, uh, whether it's the um, the interview side and the interviewing side. And you put together an interview with uh, Jayshree Bidesi. Did I pronounce that correctly? I think it's Jayshree Bidesi. Jayshree Bidesi. Okay. But she'll introduce herself and she'll say it better than we can. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, do, you, do you want to tell me what sort of like why you wanted to talk to her and, and sort of the motivations behind um, the timing behind everything? Sure. Yeah. This interview, actually, I got the idea for it because we posted a print interview, like a text interview on State of the Planet. Um, And in that interview, she mentions this project called Shoreline, where she and her colleagues at the National Center for Disaster Preparedness here at Columbia, Mm -hmm. they have been working in communities down along the Gulf Coast, um, working with children specifically who were affected by the Deepwater Horizon oil spill and finding really cool and interesting ways of empowering those kids to, to cope with a lot of the traumatic things they experienced because of the oil spill mm-hmm. and also to, to help make them be more resilient to disasters in the future. Yeah. And I, and I imagine their work, um, obviously super important for what the, the effects of the, the, the BP oil spill had, um, then, and certainly looking forward to, you know, what's happening now, the, the, the kind of, um, I guess, mental health effects that, that are occurring because of the pandemic and, there must be some parallels uh, to draw from all that. Um, the, the She came out with a recent paper, right? Uh, do you want to kind of tell us a little bit about uh, what that paper is all about? Sure. So this new paper is very much in line with the work they've been doing on Shoreline. Um, what they found was that by surveying parents in these areas that were highly impacted by the oil spill, kids who came into direct contact with oil were 4.5 times more likely than other kids to have physical health problems and also 4.5 times more likely to have mental health problems. Mm -hmm. Um, And the effects of the oil spill weren't just from physical contact. You also have these sort of secondary impacts like if their parents lost their jobs or lost a portion of their income, if their parents were stressed, if their parents were exposed to oil, then the kids would also be something roughly like three times more likely to have physical and mental health issues. And those health problems could include um, respiratory problems, vision problems, rashes, headaches, unusual bleeding, And then the mental health issues were things like sleeping problems, feeling depressed or afraid or having trouble getting along with other kids. So um, it's it's really pretty striking how this disaster really impacted children in the area. Yeah, no. And it's um, it's incredibly sad. And and even just from speaking from my perspective, looking, remembering the BPOS, which was we re- recently recognized the 10th uh, year anniversary uh, of Deepwater Horizon, right? Um, I I remember like just 
watching it on, on TV and it lasted for how many days was it? Like 80 some odd 87. days? 87. So 80 actually s- we're coming up, the it was capped on July 15th. So right around the corner from when we're recording this. Right. Yeah. And uh, it was, you know, having, I, I remember, I, I believe it was on, they, they showed like a little graphic of it on CNN, just the, like a constant 24 uh, hour watch of this bill itself, if I'm not mistaken. And um, it was, it was like a, like watching a, you know, a train wreck in slow motion or, or just, mm-hmm. and, and kind of the mental anguish that it inflicted on a lot of people who I, I, sometimes I couldn't help not watching it, but at the same time, every time I saw it, it was just incredibly um, depressing. So I'm really impressed about um, um, with this particular paper and, and the work that's being done by the um, National Center for Disaster Preparedness. Yeah, so, and I think it's also showing how important their work is, um, this work with the Shoreline Project, um, and how important it is to consider children's physical and mental health, because a lot of times we don't think about them during a disaster, and they're considered one of the most vulnerable groups because, well, they're dependent on their parents, you know, they can't sort out their own housing issues or health insurance issues, so in a way they're quite powerless, and that's Partly why the National Center for Disaster Preparedness focuses on children in a lot of their projects. Mm-hmm. So the other cool thing about the Shoreline Project is that it's not just applicable for kids living on the Gulf Coast. Um, climate change is going to have it's, climate change is going to cause disasters all over the country and all over the world, and so learning how to make children resilient, learning how to become more resilient ourselves is going to be important for everybody going forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. And just getting back to you, this was uh, your first interview uh, for uh, an audio interview, right? Uh, For for the podcast. Um, How was that? Did you, did you enjoy the process at least? It was nerve wracking because you have to (laughs) really like juggle a lot of things while you're doing it. Cause you ask the question and then you're trying to listen to their answer, but then you're like, what's going to be my next good question. I got to make it a good one. So, um, but Jay Tree is a really wonderful person and I enjoyed speaking with her. So she made it easier for me. Okay, Krill. Let's get into the interview right now. And Sarah, thanks so much again for, for doing this, for joining us. And I don't want to thank you too much because I just want you to continue to do this <laughs> and, um, and make this a regular part of your life. So, uh, I, because I, I thought you did a, an amazing job. Well, thank you. Yeah. I'd love to make this a regular part of my job. Thanks again. We'll, we'll talk to you soon. So just to start off, uh, could you introduce yourself for our audience and give us a sentence or two about what you work on? My name is Jeshri Bidesi, and I work at the National Center for Disaster Preparedness. And I work on projects which are related to um, disasters around the country uh, and uh, around the coastal areas mostly. So I've been working on uh, Hurricane Sandy and uh, looking at the impacts on the health of people and the communities. I've been working on the oil spill, obviously, for a long while now and uh, looking at uh, the socioeconomic and the health impact on uh, communities, families, and in particular on the children. Mm-hmm. Great. So I know that the National Center for Disaster Preparedness had been working down in the Gulf of Mexico since before the oil spill, actually since Hurricane Katrina. Were you actually there just after the oil spill? 
No, uh, at, at that time I was not at the center. I came uh, afterwards, especially uh, after the um, oil spill happened. So during Katrina, I was not at the center. So I didn't do any work on that, but uh, I did see what was happening uh, around. And uh, it was a really uh, bad uh, preparedness and mitigation effort which was happening. Tell us about some of the effects you saw there. When I did go, it was after the oil spill. And after the oil spill, it was really sad to see. I mean, we could all still see the effects of Katrina. Obviously, physically, you could see it on the buildings. You could see where the water had risen up and everything when we were in Louisiana, for example. But also uh, after the oil spill, we could talk to people and we would see that uh, they were feeling the brunt of so many of the disasters which had been happening and these uh, like cascading disaster, there was like a hurricane, uh, there was a, uh, Katrina, there were others which had come through afterwards and there was flooding, which happens very frequently over there. And as you know, the region itself is extremely vulnerable. It has uh, lots of uh, chronic poverty and uh, health as well. Uh, you would see that uh, in the States, it is one of the really, um, I would say, people and communities suffer from really higher rates of diabetes, of obesity and so forth. So it is like accumulation of all these that was happening at the time when the oil spill happened. So when we talked to the communities, we would find that they were, while they were very concerned about what was happening because of the oil spill, they were also concerned because of what has happened to them prior. And they were worried about their children's future and what they would, uh, if they would have any future in the region itself. So that was really, really what did strike me at that point. So what did your group actually do down there? We would go and talk to people, families. We did like interviews. We did, um, you know, focus groups. We went to see the healthcare providers. So we'd go to each community to see what was happening within that community. Our major aim at the end of the day really is to be able to help the communities in some ways, um, maybe disseminating what our results are to the policymakers, to the local authorities, to uh, higher up. The National Center for Disaster Preparedness is not only doing, uh, you know, research work, but also is very involved in policy and in practice. But uh, for the oil spill itself, we did go uh, into the practice side uh, pretty early in uh, 2012, 2013. Uh, we went into high schools, which were in regions which had been extremely highly impacted. And we'd go there and we created a program called Shoreline and we'd help the kids. The mission itself was to have the kids understand what was happening, but also to become resources for other kids who were in disasters later on. And we'd also have um like uh, content experts who would, uh, you know, run classes for them. They would understand how to run projects and how to deal and cope with what was happening to their families and themselves. Having said that, children are extremely vulnerable because they are dependent on adults. So for them, it's like getting healthcare, getting opportunities for education and so forth is extremely difficult. So that is why we would go to these children and try to make something that would help them. 
So you're sort of empowering the children. Exactly. Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Cool. So could you give a few more examples of, of what exactly the program is doing with these kids? Like what sorts of classes you're having, what sorts of skills you're building? So, um, we are no longer working on that project. You, you were, uh, most of our projects are funded. So when the fund ends, it's extremely difficult to like continue with those projects. But uh, what we did essentially was building the leadership skills, building skills of communication skills. Those were very important. And uh, also understanding disasters, understanding preparedness, understanding how they could become resilient, enhancing their resilience through programs, through, through project-based uh, learning. So they would have like projects which were related to um, counseling smaller kids, younger kids, but they would have a professional counselor with them, but they would understand like, you know, by drawing, by painting and doing things like that. Others were looking into cooking with, uh, because in the South you have much more, uh, you know, solar energy, like the sun. So they have the sunshine. So they would like, uh, were trying to make stoves that they could use, like if there is no cool. power, they were very excited to do. It was extremely exciting to see all these kids like, so, um, you know, engaged, so enthusiastic. I did this is one of the greatest experience in my life to see all those kids come together and come and present. They were so happy to be given the opportunity to present the work that they had done. And they continue doing their things. Quite a lot of them most probably have gone to, you know, colleges elsewhere. We have one student who had started very early on when we were doing like interviews with kids in the schools. And today she's a, a really good. Uh, she was doing also some um, photography for us. She learned to do that. And now she's like, you know, she's a graduate student and she's working hard and really happy what it, the opportunity that it brought to her. That's awesome. And I like the idea that the kids are learning to help other kids so that maybe it can be passed on and self-sustaining. Yeah. It's also, I think that when peers talk to peers, when kids talk to kids, they understand themselves much more than adults would understand them. So that's something. Yeah. Do you think that if there were another disaster in that area today, which hopefully there won't be anytime soon, um, these kids would be better prepared to deal with that? I, I definitely think that. Yes. Because now they have it like cognitively, they are much more, uh, like prepared to cope with such disasters. But also uh, what we see is that it's not just them, they're embedded in a system. So within that system, uh, you will see that they have the families, they have the communities, and then they have the, all the other services which surround them. So if these are not well equipped, right, they will not be able to uh, cope efficiently, effectively, because let us say if the parents has lost a job, has lost income, they, they really feel the brunt of that very heavily. What we saw, for example, and what we still see, I mean, we see that uh, they, when parents lose jobs, uh, like the family is going through uh, some economic struggle, financial struggles, these kids, they suffer mentally. 
quite a bit. And what we saw, for example, in the oil spill, we saw that um, while they were like directly uh, exposed to the oil spill, like touching the you know, the, the crude oil, the tar balls, the dispersant and the dispersant was being burnt, like the oil was being burnt. And so you would have all these particles, everything. So this would be like direct exposure. But what really affected them as well was the indirect exposure. Like when the parents were losing the jobs, it was like the family was going through hardships, like the parents' business was not doing well. They didn't have recreational time or places to go to, like they are used to going to the beach, they do recreational fishing. And when they didn't have all those things, their uh, mental health deteriorated. So what we saw was that we were talking to the parents as well. And the parents were telling us that their kids were feeling like they had uh, symptoms of, uh, you know, sleeplessness, not getting along with other kids and so forth. So whether they were like directly or indirectly exposed, they were feeling like they were having physical health symptoms and also mental health symptoms. So what I would say to the questions that you pose, to the question that you pose, was that these uh, kids can cope, but they need to have uh, the capacities around them to be able to, you know, fare better and be more resilient during disasters. Right. It sounds like resilience could be seen on multiple levels from the individual to the family, the community, and all the way up. Um, is NCDP working at those other levels or are there other measures being taken to help build resilience there? So uh, we have another project which is led by our deputy director and he is looking into the practice side of the resilience for the kids. And they have done a really great job uh, in several uh, areas, regions in the U.S. mainland itself and in Puerto Rico as well. So like enhancing the resilience of kids and how this can be done. I think also that when we talk about resilience, uh, we have to uh, understand that if we do not engage the community, resilience doesn't happen uh, in the region or within the families as well. So whenever we do research, I mean, not even practice, I'm saying research, we have to involve the community uh, from the beginning. Because when we go there, for example, I'm telling you, we have been doing so many interviews, uh, surveys. We have been talking to people, you know, since uh, the oil spill happened. And we've been doing cross-sectional studies, like uh, just asking a group of people, uh, Really, you know, what that we had randomly sampled, but also following up with the same people for many years. We just complete, uh, completed one of the projects. We talked to the people in uh, like 2012, 2014, 2016, 2018, and we'd follow them and see how their recovery had progressed. But at the same time, when we talk to these people, they're fatigued. It's not only us doing these surveys, especially after Katrina, they were like having so many groups, like you'd have people from Colombia going there. You'd have people from the region, LSU, one of our major partners on the longitudinal study. Everybody's going there and talking to all these people. First, they don't have the time because they are busy trying to uh, feed their families. But at the same time, they have to respond to all these researchers. They asked you the question, what do we get out of this? 
So one thing that we do, uh, we make it a point, is we give them the result of our uh, find, like our studies, and the findings are put into like you know top lines, and we explain to them what we have done and the results that we have seen. That is not enough, I think. So that is why I'm really happy that we have like uh, our center itself promoting our findings and disseminating them as much as possible so that there's policy change. We also talk to the local uh, policymakers as well, like, you know, so that uh, there is some change. For example, we understand that they don't have um appropriate healthcare because they lack of health providers there. So we talk to the health providers as well and see what could be done to help people. Are there any policies on the table that could help this area in the future? I think uh, if we look at, uh, especially I think if we look at the uh, climate change side of things because like you mentioned earlier it would be great if there wouldn't be any more disasters but the frequency and intensity of all these disasters are increasing and if we do not look into uh, climate change uh, and implement all the policies out there i think it will be an extremely disastrous situation and so yes i mean whatever we are proposing if they could be implemented within those uh, policies which are coming up for the um, climate change, I think it would be extremely helpful to everybody in the region. I mean, generally to everybody, but everybody in the region. You mentioned a little while ago that um, you disseminate your results to the communities, but that you felt that you should be doing more. What else would you like to be doing? Um, Like we had this program with the kids. Uh, the high school kids, uh, we would go to the most impacted uh, communities, uh, choose this school, start working with them and following them. I mean, I think if we had more programs and empowering the youth, I think because uh, the youth have so much to offer and they want to offer. I mean, throughout the world, you will see that kids are always said, oh, they are only kids. But they have so much more to offer and they can talk to young people. They can also, they are growing into the, you know, the adults of tomorrow. And so they will be prepared for whatever happens and they will be stronger. They will, um, I believe, bring new solutions that we are not seeing today in their own world. Something that would be very helpful would be to... um, educate them more and disasters, preparedness, mitigation, uh, disaster risk reduction, what others are doing uh, in terms of what the community is doing, what the uh, policymakers are doing, what uh, FEMA is doing. So if they know, they understand what is happening, it will be, there are lots of programs which are happening at this point, but we'd like them to be even more uh, you know, uh, even more programs happening throughout the country so that, you know, we have uh, their well-being and our own well-being uh, much more um, taken care of. Mm-hmm. One of the things I've been reading a lot about is how um, young people are sort of really freaked out about the climate crisis, um, taking it really to heart um, and it seems like a program like this could be useful for really 
anybody around the country because we're all going to have to deal with climate change related disasters. Are there plans to expand it to other areas? Yes, definitely. I think that um, like uh, we are looking at projects uh, which we've been doing across the country, but um, you will understand that most of our programs are dependent on funding. Of course. And uh, so we seek funding all the time and these funding help us like go to different parts of the country. At the same time, one of our aims has been to create uh, self-sustaining programs. Together with the community, we make the tools which are helpful to them and then also train them into uh, becoming self-sufficient and they as well uh, propose uh, ways of getting the program self-sufficient. While we are at the start of these things, I think there is uh, great hope in that. What else could we be doing to empower kids and help them cope with disasters? What we see is that what all children need, what all children need are stable families. They need opportunities for education. They need good health care and uh, social services and opportunities to grow. Uh, that is lacking. I mean, we might be thinking that the economy is doing great, but when you go and meet people and you see what is happening, I think that there is um, a gap in there that needs to be um, filled, that uh, students, that uh, young people, that uh, parents, they all need to work together to be able to um, grow young people into really engaged and responsible adults. But there is lots of hope. What I see about these students and what I see from the young people is that they are very engaged. Like you said, like for the um, climate change, they are so engaged and they are not taking it lightly. And I appreciate that. And it's, it's like I really thank them for it. I learn from them. And they're teaching the people around the world, uh, in the U.S. and around the world, that they are going to make this world a better place, even if there is climate change. They are going to transform this world. And if we take our responsibility as well, the researchers and all the people uh, who are around them, uh, you know, the communities and everybody, we take our responsibilities well. I think that we will look into the well-being of the communities and of the growing kids in the future. It, it really is inspiring to see people rising up to take, take action. And it's inspiring to learn about your work as well. So thank you so much for coming here to share it with me. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for me.